0: Contraposto with Bruce Nauman Over the years when I have been asked to name contemporary artists whom I respect, am influenced by, or feel an affinity toward, I often find myself referring to Bruce Nauman. When Lynn Koch invited me to give the lecture that was the origin of this essay, I decided to use it as a time to interrogate my interest in Nauman, to discern our affinities and differences, and to learn why he consistently comes to mind when answering this question. Specifically, I will discuss my initial experiences with his work, drawing on specific sculptures and photographs, then look at Naman's early films, which for me was an unknown part of his practice, as I had only seen fragments of one or two. The second part is a series of reflections on the films following the trajectory of my own thoughts on them, rather than a scholarly or comprehensive art historical approach to his work. The first Nauman work I saw was at Leo Castelli Gallery in Soho in 1985. Sex and Death, Double 69, was one set of neon works that he had done of mutual fellatio, or changing fellatio. It was astounding, and at that moment, I had a series of responses. The first one, which for me is always very powerful, was to think, damn, I wish I'd thought of that. The second was, God, if I had thought of that, I'd have done it so much better. The third was an understanding, but still a questioning of how he could do this with neon. Artists use oil and canvas, or maybe in my case, charcoal and paper. But neon? I left the gallery with these grumblings, but also a sense of amazement. I'd been in New York trying to show my work to various galleries, and a lot of people said, well, the drawings are fine really, but we need works on canvas. Even though I had seen these Nauman works, I went home, bought a roll of canvas and thought, well, now I have to start painting on canvas. That roll is still sitting unused in my studio 30 years later. I had a similar response to the second Nauman work that I encountered from hand to mouth. cast of a section of a body from the mouth down to the hand. In that group show, I also saw a series of photographs of literal expositions of phrases, such as waxing hot, which features Nauman with a polish rag waxing the letters H-O-T, and a sculpture called Henry Moore Bound to Fail, which is of a body literally bound with rope. Again, I thought, What a good idea to take the language, find the words, and then make a literal evocation of these words. But God, I'd wish he'd used better words or that the words themselves had more import. In the same photographic series is Self-Portrait as a Fountain, which is a great image of Nauman leaning back and spitting water up into the air. It intrigues in two ways. First, the simplicity of it. All it is is leaning your head back and spitting water up. Someone takes a photograph and that is your finished work. It is not about spending four weeks in a studio making difficult drawings. As soon as you think of it, you can make it and it is done. This to me was also a way of thinking that an artist's work does not necessarily have to involve all the sweat and tears that I had associated with making a drawing or a painting. Another part has to do with Naumann as the body beautiful, as an extremely elegant young man, beautifully photographed, a kind of poster boy. Part of my ongoing interest in Nauman relates to the number of times, almost as an aside, that he will open up a vocabulary, a terrain or an area for exploration. A cast of the space under my chair is fantastic in and of itself, and because of all its other possibilities, suddenly the negative space, rather than the actual object, becomes both a sculptural object and something to consider. There is an old way of teaching drawing in which one says, instead of drawing, trying to draw a hand, draw the negative space. Draw the gaps between the fingers. This more interesting way of arriving at a hand often gives one a better immediate sense of seeing a hand and avoids blinding the viewer to the obviousness of the expected object. With a cast of the space under my chair, Naman does exactly the same thing. He points out, in fact, that the concept of sitting on a chair is much stranger when we think about the negative space underneath it that we are not using. Although in later works, the chair was used in many different forms. Usually suspended in the air, that exploration of negative space or negative shapes was taken up by a number of artists, particularly Rachel Whiteread. One thing that struck me about the sculpture is that it is so deadpan. It is not made in a beautiful fashion. Not a bronze cast, but a chunk of cement. The lack of finish conveys a sense of the speed of moving through things, testing something out, abandoning it, and moving on, turning the rest of us into cleaners. In this slash-and-burn way of going through ideas, things are taken, eaten, abandoned, and other people can come behind and spend much more time mining them for a richness that might be there, a deeper level of mining. Both enormously attractive and very powerful, the lack of finish is one point about which I have felt an extraordinary antagonism. If the first idea is enough, finding substance in that idea can be left for others. One reason Naumann is so influential is the fact that some works were not finished. They can be understood as starting points or terrains to use, rather than completed areas colonized by someone and which one would have to avoid. Similarly, with Naumann's holograms series, the astonishing thing was not the actual holograms. There were awful images and ugly shapes, and I could not understand what was interesting about the positions or expressions that he had chosen. The idea that this new commercial possibility, making holograms, was something that artists could undertake seems obvious now, but at the time, the expectations of what it took to be an artist were so heavy that it was enormously powerful to find someone prepared to accept or abandon those judgments. Then there are the other works like One Hundred Live Live and Die, in which a set of phrases flash in neon, live and die, fuck and die, sing and live, fuck and live, run and live, run and die, and the rest. I understood this enormous array of phrases with the amount of neon, the number of possible words, the series of variations, as a saturation bombing. Unlike before, it was not the case of saying, well, the words aren't really that exciting or remarkable, because the mess of it felt electric. Take the neon's sore eros, or raw war, see lithograph. Thinking in palindromes or phrases is a great idea. In fact, that way of working, starting with phrases and seeing what the associations are, became an important method in my work, and I will often fill a sketchbook with phrases, rather than sketches, for a film. One major starting point of my film, Felix in Exile, is that the name Felix and the word exile are almost anagrams, which seems like a really thin basis on which to start, and an extremely thin one on which to declare a work complete. Nonetheless, allowing images to emerge through words, through their evocation, struck very deeply. Moreover, Eros and sore are emblematic. The relationship of Eros and pain is also found in raw war. Much of Naaman's work entails an extraordinary sadomasochism that forces viewers, whether we like it or not, into the position of masochists. This situation has always been disturbing and a limitation on his wordplay, but that disturbance becomes much stronger in many other works and seems to follow a kind of misanthropy, another element of his practice. If one thinks again of the associations with Eros, one goes back to the signing of the urinal by Marcel Duchamp, or rather Armut. Duchamp signed some other works with the name Rose C'est La Vie, which, in fact, is Eros, c'est la vie. Eros's life is remarkably different from Eros's sore, a very distinct attitude toward the world and to playing with those objects. What intrigued initially and still intrigues me is a relationship that incorporates a sense of indifference and often appears in Melman's work and that of Ludwig Wittgenstein, Whom Nauman sometimes refers to. Within Wittgenstein's logical investigations is a place for following a train of thought. If it ends in a failure or does not make sense, that dead end is part of the investigations and is recorded. A space is made for that failure. As soon as a space is made for the failure, either in philosophy or art making, failure disappears because everything then has its own space. That approach seems too easy, But if there is nothing to see, the artist says, well, the work is about nothing to see. And you might say, well, it's a really boring way of seeing nothing. The artist then responds, the piece is about boredom. I'm interested in boring the audience. You say, well, even if it's boring, it's kind of badly done boredom. The artist says, well, I want it to be badly done. In this scenario, there is no way to escape it being a successful piece in the end, a kind of fallacy I resist. But I am interested in the relationship around the indifference to the polish of the work, how people respond, the extraordinary confidence behind that indifference, and the freedom that facilitates. It permits enormous leaps in working, in terms of materials, of abandoning one project and starting another, all of which I have always admired. Yet, if the cost of pursuing an idea is that meaning will disappear or become secondary, the situation becomes very difficult for me. To go back somewhat to the beginning, in 1966, Nauman left art school, started teaching in San Francisco, and had a studio. As he himself described what it means to be an artist, I had no support structure for my art then, there was no chance to talk about my work, and a lot of things I was doing didn't make sense so I quit doing them that left me alone in the studio this in turn raised the fundamental question of what an artist does when left alone in the studio my conclusion was that I was an artist and I was in the studio then whatever it was that I was doing in the studio must be art in my own case this extraordinary confident starting point I am an artist what I do therefore will be art was an attractive way to be in the world because it was impossible for me, as someone making drawings in a studio, in the hope that those drawings might be seen as art. The recognition was at the end of the process, not at the beginning. In my case, I was about 35 years old before I wrote in my passport under profession, artist. Before that, I wrote technician, though I was not quite certain what it meant. The differences in circumstances between Naaman and me has also to do with my coming out of art school and wanting to work in South Africa when it was not only at the periphery of the art world but also inescapably in political turmoil. The issue of what one did in one's studio became very charged and for me perhaps a limiting Leninist question of what is to be done? Trying to think of what images needed to be made became a dead end. One of Naumann's first projects in his San Francisco studio was the neon statement of faith, the true artist helps the world by revealing mystic truths, window or wall sign. That kind of a statement is not only a beginning, but also a work of art in itself. On the one hand, as Nauman has stated, it is a silly idea. And on the other hand, I also believed it. Simultaneously true and not true, it depends on how it is interpreted, and how seriously it is considered. It contains a sense of ambiguity, which is why it has power over us. In turn, I asked, what are the mystic truths that will help the world, and thought, how nice to be in a place where such truths are satisfactory. In South Africa, there was a need for very practical truths and acting on the ground, not a virtue that pragmatism became a nightmare and inhibited my ability to think because of the feeling of responsibility for the historical burden of colonialism and apartheid. It became very difficult to work in a way that was neither preordained nor didactic nor limited. I did not believe in Noman's mystic truths and his claims to be an artist simply because he was in a studio, Moreover, I recognized his privilege to avoid getting his hands dirty in the world. Yet I understood that if one allows one's studio to be a laboratory, a place of exploration, then maybe something will emerge. I absorbed that perspective from Naumann, realizing that it may not be arrogant to declare myself an artist and see what work emerges, without some element of that assumption it was impossible to work in a much less specific, less programmed, and more intuitive manner. I am still wary of the idea of mystic truths. Indeed, the very word mystic makes them not to be believed. Instead, the true artist helps the world by showing truths that people can recognize as they see them, and are by no means necessarily of a realm outside the world. Let us return to the lack of finish. Naumann moves across a terrain of work with a kind of indifference to the audience. Indifference, however, is a generous descriptor. Quite often, his work displays a real antagonism in two ways. Sometimes, it is literally spelled out as in the lithograph that says, Pay attention, motherfuckers. The text is written in reverse, so one must really pay attention. Nauman makes no bones about it. He wants to jolt you. It is not an invitation to participate. In fact, as he says, he wants viewers to feel as if they are getting hit in the face with a baseball bat, or better, like getting hit on the back of the neck. You never see it coming. It just knocks you down. Who we are as viewers to want to be in that position, it is like saying... We're the big tough guys here, and this is what it's going to be. If you come into the studio or the gallery, this is what's going to happen. This overweening self-confidence may, in fact, mask some anxieties or a lack of confidence. In considering this position, I cannot forget another statement of extraordinary American confidence. The conservative political columnist PJ O'Rourke wrote a book in 1988 about visiting Europe and what made the continent seem so intolerable? As I am not European, I escaped much vitriol directed specifically at Europe, but the situation did not feel so different in South Africa. The part that interests me is O'Rourke's reaction to a European who had criticized the United States. The response We're the big boys, Jack, the original giant, economy sized, new and improved butt kickers of all time. When we snort Coke in Houston, people lose their hats in Cap d'Antibes. When we've got an American Express card limit higher than your piss ant metric numbers go, you say our country has never been invaded. You're right, little buddy. Because I'd like to see the needle dicked foreigners who'd have the guts to try. We drink napalm to get our hearts started in the morning. A rape and a mugging is our way of saying cheerio. Hell can't hold up our sock hops. We walk taller, talk louder, spit further, fuck longer, and buy more things than you know the names of. I'd rather be a junkie in New York City than king, queen, and jack of you all Europeans. We eat little countries like this for breakfast, then shut them out before lunch. Of course, the guy should have punched me, but this was Europe. He just smiled his shabby, superior European smile. God, don't these people have dentists? While it is not Nauman's position, O'Rourke's reaction triggered a response in me, an antagonism to being not so much ignored, but abused. I too responded to these artworks, a smile that showed my teeth. I long to have the expansiveness or power to create a piece like Clown Torture, in which a clown shouts, no, for several hours. It involves a marginal abuse of viewers who can easily walk out, but an extraordinary abuse of curators or attendants who must stay in the gallery for hours at a time. It is not clown torture, but other people's torture. Yet that confidence is enormously attractive. In a group exhibition with 15 others, it says that we artists do not care. We are going to eat you for breakfast and shit you out before lunch. Our work is bigger, louder, and stronger than anything you are going to do. In addition to admiration, I felt enormous anger toward projects such as these and the the misanthropy behind them. But that reaction was an attempt to decrease the power of the work. I'm reluctant to give up many hard-won ways of thinking, of working, and to accept his approach would mean abandoning the others. Furthermore, that feeling reflects a worry about naturalizing a particular aesthetic politics in a particular politics and is also an effort to make sense of a reversal of influence. Take Duchamp, who wanted to make something that was not art. His famed found object, a pisoire rather than a painting, was the furthest thing possible from art. Years later, his urinal had been transformed into such an aesthetic object that restrooms and old French bistros all began to feel like little shrines to the artist. That is a reversal of influence. What we think now affects how we see the past, not the other way around. Once a figure is iconic, it is almost impossible to see the work in any other terms. For me, that reversal was also difficult because of my life, far from the art world in New York and in Europe. When I first saw Nauman, there was a similar sense that he was the model artist of the moment, the Jackson Pollock of the time, in the center of the art world. As I looked at the work, I kept asking, am I giving it a fair viewing? Am I being too antagonistic? Am I still swayed by the power of this world that is centering the world around him? The work of the abstract expressionists and pop artists was not only astonishing, but also a Cold War statement about what is done in America compared to Western Europe. Obviously, those characteristics are completely interlinked and hard to disentangle. After all, it has taken me many years to love many of Andy Warhol's paintings. Even now, I wonder if I have been seduced or if I really do love them. The reversal of influence confers a retrospective authority of truth. And the question is always whether this is a legitimate authority of truth. In Making sense of one's own sentimental education, one must inspect which things have constructed how one sees the world part of my wariness and anger toward Nauman has to do with my uncertainty about my own judgments and viewing. I now come to the second part of the essay where I look at some early films, all from 1968 to 1970, that certainly follow the precept, I'm an artist in my studio, whatever I do in the studio is art. In this series, the studio becomes both a stage and the canvas. When I first saw Bouncing Two Balls between the floor and ceiling with changing rhythms, my immediate reaction was, who is this artist with the elegant t-shirt, black jeans, and a Walt Whitman body beautiful in the studio? But I also consider the studio as a frontier, one connected to the Pollock myth. If one starts with Pollock painting in his shed, the canvases happen. With Nauman, one must ask, what one does in the studio once the canvas and brushes are taken away. As an artist, one waits to see what is going to happen. Then the question becomes, is this activity of waiting, of passing time in the studio, enough to justify a practice or an activity? The balls have been bounced and nothing has really happened. Another film, playing a note on the violin while I walk around the studio, depicts Nauman picking up a violin, walking around the studio and playing it. And it is difficult to know how one is meant to watch. Is this an act of endurance in the hope that something will change? Is it about expectations? Will he lose the note? Will he fall over? Or is it about time passing? Is the artist himself becoming the painting? Is the film projection the same as a painting that has been done on the floor? Before, one had a sense that a painting was a record of an artist's actions, the trace of an artist moving through space. Now, film, also depicting the artist moving through space, has become another medium entirely. But is one allowed, then, to have other associations? Norman wears these pointy Pied Piper shoes and acts like the Pied Piper to himself, leading himself on, waiting for others to follow him out of the space. The humor in the work is apparent, and one can understand the route from the craziness of Dada to Duchamp and onward to Nauman, whose wide-ranging sense of play is also fantastic. Mapping the Studio One, Fat Chance, John Cage, is a record of Nauman's studio at night, and about the only activity, albeit sporadic, in this nearly six-hour work, comes from his cat and the mice that live there. Nauman becomes the canvas and brush in these films. Within this interesting progressive reduction, the dramas are minute. Does a mouse run across the floor or not? The film is like a Jules Oletsky painting, with lots of nothing except a tiny border where events happen. If I were filming an empty studio, I would want to put the cat in there, maybe with extra mice, a way of thinking much more in tune with Samuel Beckett. I would try to find and film the goad that pushes the first mouse out, then the second, and so on. I would aim to uncover the dramas that can happen within the very limited palette. Instead, mapping the Studio One is this very faint event horizon, but its overall presentation, the color of the projections, their arrangement fully in the round, and the stillness of settling into a chair in the gallery creates a kind of magical space. When one takes the studio as a place of exploration, what is the weight an action needs to have an impact? Determined by the length of the format for the recording device, the 16 millimeter films are nine minutes long, The length of a 400-foot roll of film, and the videotapes usually had a one-hour duration. They hover, interestingly, on the edge of performance, or even further, endurance. Walk with Contrapposto takes concentration to do for an hour, but is not so difficult that it becomes an exciting thing to watch, to see if he will survive. The performances are done so perfectly or extraordinarily constructed that they are not about being lost in a Zen meditation. One senses that he was interested in this activity. If we want to, we can watch, and if not, we can leave. Interestingly, this walk within the narrow corridor, I think Naumann understood that it was a much more stimulating thing for him to do than for us to watch. In a later piece, visitors are invited, not necessarily to do the contrapposto walk, but certainly to walk up and down a very confined space. Walking is a really banal activity. However, what you think of a performance or something to film can have a completely different life, which opens a whole extra terrain of sculpture, of thinking about space, building walls of sculpture, and things that move from stage to art gallery to museum and back. In the one hour video, Tony sinking into the floor, face up and face down, the camera is pointed at Tony, who unsurprisingly is busy sinking into the ground. This work shows the edges or limits of Nauman's project, revealing a lack of a need to connect to other people in a conventional way that feels like autism. Considering the repetitive actions of simply bouncing in the corner for nearly an hour, or capturing the catatonic stance of the person sleeping, the work came out of a project called "Failing to Levitate in the Studio." And Naaman writes interestingly about the new version. The problem was to make the exercise take up a full hour, which I had never been able to do. It became extremely tense. The guy who was trying to sink into the floor started to choke and almost got the dry heaves i got pretty scared and didn't know what to do i didn't know if i should wake him up or what or if he was kind of sleepwalking i didn't know if he was physically ill or if he was really gasping and choking the tape was running but unfortunately the microphone did not pick it up but i wish it had because it was really beautiful interestingly the night before the same thing had happened to a girl in the other tape. Regarding the other version, Elkie allowing the floor to rise up over her, face up, he says, she broke out into an incredible sweat, and she couldn't breathe. It was pretty scary. It was, first of all, amazing that someone else could do this exercise, that they could even get into it. It was such an intense experience that it was really frightening for both of them to do. As nearly as I can tell, the tapes don't show any of that, which I thought was also interesting. Here is a more explicit example of the considerable difference between our practices. The work interests the artists, and whether it interests the audience does not really matter. During the period in 2002 in which this talk was originally given, I was living in New York for a few months, and I began to use a video camera in my studio. I was playing with reversals of action, doing simple actions, and then playing them backward. Taking the precept of letting the studio be the stage and the actions be what I was doing, I was partly intrigued by the idea of time working in the opposite direction, of influence working backward rather than forward. How does the world look backward with me in my studio? The results were quite interesting video fragments but they did not have the weight of works themselves. I would have to work on them as performances. To simply record was not enough. They needed a shape, and in my opinion, not every failure is interesting enough to be a showable failure. Later, Naman moved out of the studio, started doing other works, and in the end, decided that the studio was not a sufficient frontier. By the mid-80s he had adopted a western lifestyle, owning a ranch and raising and training horses in New Mexico. For me it seems he wanted to find the part of reality that the work can engage with, which is not necessarily the same as being inside the frame or the space. Setting a good corner, which I have seen at Dia, shows Nauman sitting a fence post his version of Robert Frost's Mending Wall. The interesting thing about the poem, something there is that doesn't love a wall, is its focus on the contradiction and complexities of having a border. As one character says, good fences make good neighbors. On the one hand, the narrator hates the wall, yet, as he is building this barrier, it provides an opportunity for contact. The poem reveals a very complex set of ideas about what it is to be in the world with other people. Nauman's work is not about that sense of one person meeting another. I cannot think offhand of any places where this sort of meeting is done without it being either simply an attack or an abuse of one or the other. But many of Nauman's acts, him alone in the studio, him setting up the fence post, or even a clown being tortured, are very solitary. For me, the Fence Post video is most related to ideas of the Marlborough Man and the Wild West. Nauman has found his little frontier and makes a fence, but then goes back to the studio. Slow Angle Walk is a piece that obviously emerges from late 1960s dance and choreography, but also has an affinity with Beckett's way of thinking about the stage and the minimum one can do there to make a performance. Naaman detailed the steps for this performative walk as indicated in a number of diagrams and as follows. In the diagrams, the squares indicate the length of the step. These steps are made by raising the leg without bending the knee until it is at a right angle to the body, then swinging 90 degrees in the direction indicated in the diagram. The body then falls forward onto the raised foot and the other leg is lifted to again make a straight line with the body. It is all worked out very precisely in the instructions. The work is about nothing happening, a set of rules in which not much will change. Watch the film for an hour, and it is not really different from watching it at any moment. Yet, it encouraged me to look back at Beckett, specifically the two-page theatre piece, act without words, which is a fitting conclusion to this essay. This mind should be played on a low and narrow platform at the back of stage, violently lit in its entire length, the rest of the stage being in darkness, freeze effect. A, slow, awkward, absent. B, brisk, rapid, precise. The two actions, therefore, though B has more to do than A, Should have approximately the same duration. Etc. B. Wearing shirt. Crawls out of sack. Gets to his feet. Takes from shirt pocket and consults a large watch. Puts watch back. Does exercises. Consults watch. Takes a toothbrush from shirt pocket. And brushes teeth vigorously. Puts brush back rubs scalp vigorously, takes a comb from shirt pocket and combs hair, puts comb back, consults watch, goes to clothes, put them on, consults watch, takes a brush from coat pocket and brushes clothes vigorously. The sack moves, exit goad, A crawls out of sack, halts, broods, prays, curtain.